Greetings and welcome to First Impressions, a production of Marginalia Radio. I'm your host, Joseph Kelly. Joining me is Tim Whitmarsh, the A.G. Leventis Professor of Greek Culture at the University of Cambridge. Tim is the author of Battling the Gods, Atheism in the Ancient World, published by Alfred A. Knopf in 2015. Tim, welcome to Marginalia Radio. Thank you very much for having me on, Joseph. Is it controversial for you to write an entire book dedicated to the examination of atheism in the classical world? Well, I do hope so, yes. The aim of writing a book like this it was certainly to stir things up, I mean, in two ways, really. One was to show that ancient history can intervene in debates that we're having now. And the other is, of course, to try to shake up the way in which conventional stories about the ancient world have been told. So, yes, I mean, the idea was to generate some heat. And I think that the book was quite successful in doing that. What is it that people find controversial about your book? The book argues that atheism is, in a sense, as old as recorded history. So the claim of the book really is that implicitly every society has its forms of atheism and scepticism and so forth. Religious thought tends to be much better represented because uh, evidence is generally sort of mainstream evidence. So you don't really usually get the more quiet, sceptical voices in the historical record. But what's really interesting about ancient Greece in particular in the book is the depth and the richness of the material that we have from it, which is really unparalleled in the ancient world at all, allows us to hear many different voices, some of them which are uh, go well beyond the mainstream and take a much more sceptical attitude. So yeah, the, the claim of the book really is that atheism has a history that is comparable to that of religion, that it, uh, atheism is older than Christianity, older than Islam, and at least as old as Judaism. And that was really the controversial button that, that the book was pressing. Can readers take for granted that they know what you mean when you use the word atheism, or does your book present a more complicated understanding of atheism? So I would answer that in two ways. One is I do think that there is something continuous about the history of atheism, both across time and across space. Atheists tend to be a certain kind of person, and the, the neuroscientists who know much more about the functioning of the brain will tell you that there are certain types of people who tend to be of high intelligence, but perhaps less emotional than other kinds of people who are more prone to atheism. So I do think that one needs to keep in sight the fact that atheism is a real thing and it is part of human nature. Having said that, forms of atheism are culturally variable, and that is absolutely true. And atheism in the classical Greek world certainly didn't take exactly the same form that atheism takes now. Classical Greece as a polytheistic society had many different types of God, and it was also a society without orthodoxy because it had no sacred text, it had no particularly powerful priesthood to try to enforce beliefs about the nature of the gods. And as a result, you've got a much more polymorphous, if you like, range of views about what a god is or what a god is not. I sometimes think about atheism in the modern world as we've got a very reductive view of belief, really, mainly as a result of monotheism. Monotheism says, you know, you believe in this god or you don't believe in this god. And then we end up with a kind of on-off switch. In classical antiquity, it wasn't really like that. There was a much more diverse range of particular positions that you could take in relation to the gods, including not believing that they exist at all, but taking in various forms of scepticism that don't quite push that far. So there may, may be some gods that you believe in, but some that you don't believe in. There may be, you might, might believe that gods exist, but that they have no influence whatsoever on our world and so forth. So as I say, it's a, it's a much more open-ended model. My argument in the book is a historical developmental idea that Greeks 
books over a millennium of history did actually come to a very strong idea of what atheism was and that was something that was comparable to our idea of atheism now so at some point in the second century bce people started understanding atheism in roughly the same terms that we do now as a philosophical commitment to the non-belief in any form of divinity so over time yes i think they did reach their way to something like what we would call atheism What kinds of historical sources exist that allow for the examination of ancient atheistic beliefs? And how representative are these sources of the full spectrum of atheism in the ancient world? Well, that is the million-dollar question. It's a very good question, actually. I mean, the question of sources is one that bedevils any kind of study of antiquity. How can we trust the sources that we have to give us any kind of accurate picture? When one thing we know about sources is they're always telling a story, that they're always pushing us in a certain direction, that they are selectively representing their world. The sources that we have for atheism are largely literary and philosophical sources, which tend by their nature to be the products of a limited range of people. As it happens, almost all of the sources that I use are written by men. Almost all of them are written by members of the elite. So chances are they are not representative at all. The one period in which you can do something a bit more expansive really is classical Athens, because we know that classical Athens had theatre, which was nothing like theatre now. Theatre was mass media. It really was for, for to, uh, the entire citizen body insofar as um, everyone could make it on that particular day. So tens of thousands of people went to the theatre. And we know that these people had stories of atheism played out in front of them, or at least uh, atheistic ideas in front of them. So in classical Athens, I think it's it's the, the technologies, if you like, that were allowed for the dissemination of radical anti-theistic ideas were actually pretty sophisticated. In the rest of the ancient world, we don't really have that texture of evidence, and we are talking about a fairly limited, but I, don't, I think it's worth not exaggerating the limited nature of the sharing of these sources. That's to say, a school like Epicureanism, a philosophical school like Epicureanism, a pretty big reach in classical antiquity. The philosophical schools in the Hesitant and Roman period were kind of big news. I mean, again, largely consigned to the elite. But the evidence that we have for Epicureanism suggests that it did also take in women and slaves and so forth. So it's hard to answer the question conclusively, but I would say cautiously that the evidence is representative, but we always need to take into account the fact that it is primarily elite sources that are giving it to us. Could you share a couple of examples you examine in your book of atheism in the ancient world? Maybe one example from a figure who is generally well-known and another example from a figure who most readers might know nothing about? Yes. Okay. Well, let me give you as an example of a well-known figure, someone I just mentioned, Epicurus. Now, Epicurus was a philosopher who lived in the late 4th and early 3rd century BCE. And what he was trying to do, I think more than anything else, was try to disrupt the dominance of Plato. Plato is a heavily theistic philosopher. And the reason for Plato's theism, the reason that Plato pushes so hard the idea that there is a transcendent idea of divinity, I think has to do with the execution of Socrates on charges related to atheism in 399 BCE. So Plato pushes in one direction. I think Epicurus tries to push back in the other direction. Epicurus is an absolutely fascinating figure. He thinks that the world is made out of nothing but void and atoms. He is one of the people who popularizes the word atom. And in particular, Epicurus promotes the idea that death is the end. And he sees that as the great comforting story of his philosophy. Our world is the one world that we have. And it's incumbent on us not only to do as well as we can morally in our world, but also to enjoy it in all of the ways that we possibly can. 
So Epicurus is a deeply influential person. He leaves a massive footprint on subsequent generations in the ancient world. But the really interesting thing about Epicurus is that despite all of that, he did actually say there are gods. Now, his gods must have been made of matter. They must have sort of existed or whatever, but he has no real account of what these gods were like. And he certainly says they can't punish your soul because you have no soul. Their body is entirely made of matter. They can't intervene in our world. Praying to them does no good except insofar as it is a sort of social glue to bond people together in this world. So he has a, a role for gods, but that role is nothing to do with our life whatsoever. And as a result, Epicurus was known amongst his detractors as an atheist. If you'd ask most people in classical antiquity, um, who is the atheist par excellence? They would have said Epicurus. Now you ask for one other name, a figure who is almost unknown now, was quite sort of um, big in the 19th century, is Diagoras of Milos, who lived in the late 5th century BCE and came to Athens. And the evidence for him is so sketchy, it's very, very difficult to work out what kind of person he was. But he was also identified as one of the, the big um, atheists. Uh, this book just came out a couple of weeks ago, actually, uh, by a, a very well-established Polish scholar who takes a diametrically opposed view to mine. Uh, this scholar thinks that he wasn't an atheist and that that reputation came later. My view is that actually Diagoras probably changed things quite substantially around the 420s. He probably introduced an idea that of himself as a battler against the gods, as somebody who, you know, in the way, in the mythical mode, flew up to Olympus and challenged the gods using arguments like the argument from evil. Why does evil exist in the world? Why does injustice exist in the world if there are gods there to sort it out? And that phrase, battling the gods, is the Greek Theon Makos, gave me the title of the book. So Diagoras is a bit bit of a hero for me, but he is less well-known, as I say, and the evidence can be played in a number of different ways. Your book does more than catalogue the sceptical attitudes of ancient figures. You plot the history of the ancient world and identify how the events in history help us to understand the atheism of the day. Can you provide an example of how we can better understand atheism in the ancient world by being aware of the events of history? Yes. This comes back to a point that I made earlier, which was that I think we need to understand atheism like religion, if you like, in a two-pronged way. We need to understand it both as something which is always there in human society and as something that is historically variable. So we do see big turning points in the history of atheism, and I could go into greater detail about it, but let me just identify two from the book. One is the emergence of the Hellenistic world in the aftermath of the conquest of Alexander the Great. So we're talking the late 4th century, early 3rd centuries BCE. And in this period, what you get is a much more of an emphasis on big, strong rulers, rulers of international empires like Alexander the Great himself. And in particular, these figures are understood as gods amongst men. There are older ideas about the divinization of human beings, but it really becomes a big thing that humans, by achieving amazing things, particularly by ruling over large empires, can be understood as gods. And I think once you've got that sort of sense disseminated widely in culture, that humans can become gods, that has a sort of interesting corrosive effect on people's idea of divinity. So there's one hymn that I play with in the book, which turns that idea on its head and says that the only real God can be a human who's become a God, because they're the only gods that you can see. Gods that are invisible must be non-existent. They must be remote. They must have nothing to do with our world whatsoever. It's only gods that you can see. Another figure that I deal with in the book is a figure called Euhemerus, who writes a story about discovering a 
inscription in the Indian Ocean. And in this inscription, it says that the gods that we conventionally worship, that's his Zeus and Hera and so forth, the Olympian gods, they themselves are divinized mortals, that they started out as mortals and then were treated by social convention as gods. So this idea that humans can become gods, it's a really important fillip to the development of a certain kind of atheism because it breaks down that barrier between human and divine and gets people asking different kinds of questions. The other juncture that I just mentioned very quickly is the emergence of the Roman Empire, which is very strongly into the idea of providence, the idea that the Roman Empire is mandated by divine fiat, that the gods have said, yes, Rome, it's in your gift to rule the world. That idea that history is shaped by divine will becomes a prompt for a new set of, of ideas about the ways in which atheism could work. You survey a long period of history during which religious beliefs change and evolve. Is atheism in the ancient world multiform and dynamic like religion is? Yes, that's exactly the claim of the book. And implicitly, that's a critique of the rather arid conception of atheism that I think we've ended up with in the modern era. Atheism is presented to us, perhaps by the new atheists, but more, more by the critics of new atheism, as though it were a very simple, reductive, naive, to go back to an image I used earlier, kind of flipping the switch. So you simply sort of say, no, all religion part needs to go. We're just going to sit here happily contemplating our um, scientific selves and so forth. And I think, as I say, if you look at atheism over time. This isn't just a claim that I make, actually. Um, there are scholars of early modern atheism that make very similar sorts of claims. If you look at atheism over time, you can see that it takes extraordinarily different forms. I come back to this idea that we need to see atheism both as a universal and as something that is historically variable. Religion, actually, you weren't asking about religion. Religion, as many scholars of religion see religion in similar sorts of terms. There's a real problem with the very idea of religion, which can, the minute you start talking about religion, you're setting up what you're looking for in very modern terms. So people do worry about doing the history of religion from a modern standpoint as well. It's important to, to be really kind of careful about this and not see atheism or religion as something that a category that we can take for granted now and understand back through time. It, this, this sense of modulation through time and variability is really, I suppose, that's the richest story that ancient history can teach us, I think. One early reviewer of your book suggested that the relationship between ancient and modern streams of atheism is not genetic, which was his understanding of your argument, but rather that these two species of unbelief independently evolved similar intellectual traits. Is this an accurate understanding of your argument? And what do you think of his characterization of the relationship between ancient and modern streams of atheism? I certainly don't claim that the relationship between ancient and modern is genetic. I'd be very cautious about those sort of terms indeed, because behind that sort of language is a a familial model, an idea of genealogical descent that immediately starts getting us back into a very outdated way of, of understanding particularly Greece and Rome as parents of modern Western culture. And that needs to be resisted at every single point. The relationship between classical antiquity and modernity is not a, an obvious, self-evident knock-on one. As I say, that's far from the claim of the book. I don't say that anywhere. What I do say, though, is that there is something continuous about the experience of atheism and putting modern experiences of atheism next to ancient Greek ones, which, as I say, are the best documented one. That's the reason. I mean, I'm a specialist in ancient Greece, but the reason why ancient Greece is a particularly good place to do the history of atheism is because it's so well documented there. What that shows us is that there is a continuity of experience across space and time. 
And I suspect that if you wanted to do this for ancient India or ancient China, again, very well documented societies, perhaps not quite so richly documented in this sort of area as the classical world, but uh, you get a similar sort of picture. So as I say, the, the claim about atheism is really that certain types of people that throughout history have always adopted sceptical advantages vis-a-vis religion. But I would worry back a little bit on that because modern atheism didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of two sources, one of which is extremely well documented, which is to say the rise of modern science and the secular state. But the other of which is actually... And we have to remember that people were reading classical literature very intently in Europe in the 17th, 18th and 19th century is the time when modern atheism began to take the shape that it it, it takes now. And a lot of these people were reflecting on the very exciting messages that they got. They got, in particular, in a text like Lucretius' On the Nature of Things, which is an Epicurean poem that was written in the first century BCE, and it offered a way of understanding the world that was entirely naturalistic. Lucretius, being an Epicurean, does occasionally say there are such things as gods, but they don't interfere with his mechanistic model of the world, his materialistic model of the world at all. And the role of someone like Lucretius in the forging of modern ideas of secular atheism is not to be underestimated. And in fact, actually, that was the subject of Stephen Greenblatt's recent book, The Swerve, which is pushing it back a little bit earlier, but talking about the Renaissance and the rediscovery of Lucretius and the way in which the making of modernity as he saw it was dependent on a form of classical reception. So as I say, it's not a genetic relationship, it's not a parent-child relationship between classical antiquity and modernity. Modernity, but modernity's readings in classical antiquity have been deeply influential. In the preface to your book, you write, It is not my opinion to prove the truth, or indeed falsehood, of atheism as a philosophical position. I do, however, have a strong conviction, a conviction that has hardened in the course of researching and writing of this book, that cultural and religious pluralism and free debate are indispensable to the good life. How and why did the research and writing of this book have this particular effect on you? The first part of that sentence was an attempt to say this is a historical work. It's not a work that is designed to be partisan for one side or the other. I don't know, uh, <laughs> many readers will have, will have, will not perhaps have been particularly convinced by that. I mean, it, it clearly is a book that is that shows, displays a lot of sympathy for atheism as a philosophical position. But the feeling underlying the second part of that sentence is that whenever I've got into these debates, um, which I have increasingly over the last year, and actually even after the, the publication of the book, much more so, public debates about the nature and the position of atheism and religion in our culture, it does very quickly become a form of ossified identity politics in which people dig themselves into corners and they say, my worldview is superior to your worldview, I dismiss your worldview, not necessarily trying to find any form of common ground, not necessarily trying to form, find any means of moving forward through debate and dialogue. And that, I think the, the, there are a few things to admire about the ancient Greek and Roman world. It's a, it's a culture of a massively repressive culture with uh, slavery and a terrible treatment of women and so forth. But one of the things that I really do admire about this culture is that it was a culture that believed in debate and dialogue and that the decisions were best reached together through discussion in the public sphere. And I do think that that is something that we need to learn collectively. Both atheist and religious people need to find ways of talking to each other in a more constructive way. The next book that I'm going to write on this topic will be about Epicurus. And I think that Epicurus actually had a good model. Epicurus wasn't a hostile atheist. He wasn't somebody who who set up his worldview to be 
exclusive of others, but at the same time, nor was he just uh, the occupant of a sort of soupy middle ground. He was somebody who had very strong convictions, but it was an open-ended, philosophically rich version of the good life that invited people in and invited people to share the experience. And that that's really what I was trying to get at with that sentence that you quoted. That concludes this episode of First Impressions. Again, the book is Battling the Gods, Atheism in the Ancient World. Thanks to Tim Whitmarsh for joining us, and thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Have a great day. Bye.